We are in the second week of our series that we're kicking off this year called Too Good To Be True. And we're aiming to answer some of the questions you might have about the Christian faith. Or if you don't have them, maybe your neighbours do. Maybe your colleagues do, or your friends, or your family. Maybe you've got family members who don't know Jesus yet. And they've got questions, they've got things that they think block believing in the Lord Jesus. Last week, we looked at whether Christianity still matters in this day and age. Sure, 2,000 years ago, maybe, but in the 21st century, here in the West. And the way we did that is we looked at the story that we tell. We looked at the, the big picture story that is in the Bible, and we just stopped at different points to talk about why that is still relevant today. It will be on the podcast soon. I'm running a little bit behind, but I will pop it up on the podcast and then you can go back and listen to it. You can share it with your friends, etc. This week's question focuses on, make sure I know where it is, the Bible. Our question this week is, isn't the Bible full of fairy tales and myths? I think that's the way people think about it sometimes. And there is, to be fair, a lot of fantastical stuff in this book. We've got talking snakes, we've got angels, we've got water turning into blood, we've got water turning into wine, we've got visions and healings, we've got miraculous provision of food, we've got floods, virgin births, talking donkeys, we've got the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And surely that shows that the Bible's just jam-packed with myths and just-so stories, and so surely we can't take it seriously today. I'm hoping you disagree because I'm going to try and convince you that the Bible is worth listening to today, that it isn't just full of fairy tales and myths. But before we get there, we need to look and say, well, what is the Bible? Very easy to say it's the holy book of Christians, but that isn't quite right. This is not just one book. If you know any Latin languages, you will know that the word for library, for example, in Portuguese and Spanish, is biblioteca. Bible means library. It is a collection of holy books. There are 66 books in the Bible, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. It was written by around about 40 authors on three different continents. The earliest book, they reckon, is the book of Job, written in sort of 19, somewhere between 1900 and 1700 BC. That's before Jesus Christ was born. And then the newest one was the book of Revelation, which most commentators think was written sometime between 65 to 90 AD. It's 2,000 years in the making. There are different genres and literary styles. You've got historical accounts. You've got the book of Genesis, Exodus, 1 and 2 Kings, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. In the New Testament, you've got the Gospels and the book of Acts. Uh, there are some significant chunks of genealogy in 1 Chronicles. That's one of the places that your Bible in a year plan can trip you up. You've got the first nine chapters or so of 1 Chronicles, which is just so-and-so had this, begat this person, begat this person, begat this person. And it can be tough going, to be fair. Uh, you've also got official records for Israel in the Old Testament. You've got Israel's priestly law book. There was one tribe, the tribe of Levi, who were the priests for the whole of the nation of Israel. And the book of Leviticus is their book of laws, ropes, routines, the way that God wanted Israel to worship and relate to him. 
You've got prophecies and visions in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. You've got wise writings in Ecclesiastes and Proverbs. You've got the prayer or the hymn book of Israel in the book of Psalms. You've got a romantic opera in the Song of Songs. It's celebrating the beauty of marital love. It's also, I believe, picturing the love story between God and Israel and ultimately between Jesus and his bride, the church. You don't have to choose one or the other. Too many people say, well, no, it's just a love story or it's just that symbol. It's both. It's supposed to be both. You've got Job. I've already mentioned the oldest book. Some people think possibly more myth than history. Personally, I think Job probably did exist. And I think it did happen, as it said. But you do get some people who think it's a little bit more of maybe a, a bit of a drama to make a point. Letters from the apostles to the churches. Romans, Corinthians 1 and 2. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. Uh, you've got not just Paul's letters, but you've got 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. You've got 1 Peter, 2 Peter, Jude. The letter to the Hebrews, whoever wrote that. And then you've got, right in the mix of it, parables and object lessons. The, the way that Jesus tended to teach was in stories that were made up to make a point. Not always. Lazarus may have been a real person, for example. Um, but this is the mix that you have in the Bible. It's not just one style. They're not all stories. Leviticus is that other place that tends to trip you up in your Bible in one year plan. Because it's all nice and stories and you can make sense of it. And then you get to Leviticus and it feels like chewing on sawdust. <laughs> it's still good stuff if you dig into it it tells you all sorts of brilliant stuff about Jesus Christ but it's tricky to get your head into sometimes the Bible was written in Hebrew Aramaic and Greek so unless you're a classic scholar you are going to have to rely on an English translation we're going to see a bit later on but thankfully there are some excellent ones out there the Bible and this is where I move from just a description to an article of faith we believe that the Bible is inspired 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17, all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, what I'm doing right now, for rebuking when someone is wrong or someone isn't believing the right thing, for correcting, for training in righteousness. Why? So that the man of God, women, you're included too, so that the person of God, the people of God, may be complete, equipped for every good work. So we, don't, we believe that it is inspired, but we do not believe that it is dictated. Muslims believe that the Quran was dictated from Allah to Muhammad. They believe that there is a copy of the Quran in heaven, word for word, the same as what they've got. We don't believe that. We believe that God inspired. We don't believe that God took control of people's hands or minds and dictated it. Though there are times in the prophets, particularly, where God does speak for himself. When you've got, thus says the Lord, or declares the Lord, that is God himself speaking through the prophets. But generally speaking, each author was fully involved in writing their part of the Bible. So their personality comes through, their views come through, their writing style comes through. John has a different writing style to Luke, has a different writing style to Mark, has a different writing style to Matthew. This is all part of the rich beauty and tapestry of the Bible. So the inspiration is a little bit like how an architect envisions and guides the constructing of a building, even though he doesn't lay a single brick himself. 
trying to move on because I know Eddie has some interesting views about architects based on his experience in the trade. But architects guide and envision. They don't lay the bricks. In the same way, God guides and inspires the authors and the builders of Scripture. So that's what the Bible is. But is it trustworthy? 2,000 years old at least, took 2,000 years to write it. Can we trust it? Well, I want to suggest yes, we can. Because, first of all, there is, despite the fact that it was written by 40 different people over 2,000 years, there is a, such a consistency of thought from Genesis through to Revelation. Now, there are themes repeated throughout the Bible that are amazing, given how the Bible itself was composed. We saw some of these last week. We looked at the tree of life appearing in the Garden of Eden and then reappearing in the book of Revelation in chapter 21 and 22. You see that the story starts in a garden infused with God's presence and goodness. It leads to cities and civilizations that humans make in the absence of God once we've been cast out of the garden. And then it ends with a garden in a city that is no longer cut off from God, but has God himself as their light. That's one of the themes. We see sacrifices throughout the Bible. We've talked a little bit about that this morning. But you have sacrifices from the animals used to fashion Adam and Eve's clothes when they rebelled. God killed two animals, or an animal, and he made the clothes for Adam and Eve. That's an early sign of sacrifice before you get to Leviticus, before you get to the Passover lamb in Exodus. You see Abraham and Isaac on the mountain. You see their Passover lambs in Exodus. You see the Levitical sacrificial system. You see their fulfillment in Jesus' death on the cross. There is sacrifice as a theme through the Bible. We see God's mission in history to fashion and redeem a people he can call his own, forgiving them, saving them, redeeming those who will be his. One of the biggest themes is the way the Bible points to Jesus. We covered this toward the end of last year when we looked at how Paul taught that Jesus is the promised Messiah from the scriptures. It's going to be on the podcast soon. I will email around when it's up there. I can't dwell too long on it here, but what I can do is throw up a couple of images from a book called the Infographic Bible. Now, it's quite small, so you're not going to be able to see the detail, but on the left-hand side, you have got all of the times that something about the Messiah is promised in the Old Testament. On the right-hand side, you've got every time that is fulfilled. Going from left to right, you can just see the beautiful symmetry, the beautiful pattern of the promises made about the Messiah and how they're fulfilled and documented as fulfilled in the New Testament. The Bible is all about Jesus. You can see it in this one as well, which is just about the Gospels. On the left-hand side, you've got the Old Testament. On the right-hand side, you've got the fulfillment in the Gospels. All the lines going between. This book, written over 2,000 years, is just consistent from start to end. You can see Jesus on every page of the Bible if you look for him. And that grandest overriding theme is about the coming of the Son of God to redeem us, to restore us to relationship with him, and to put us back on track to fulfill God's good purposes in creation. Itty bitty amen. Other reasons we can trust the, new, um, the Bible is the New Testament 
makes claims to be eyewitness testimony. In Luke 1, verses 1 to 4, Luke says this, Many people have set out to write accounts about the events that have been fulfilled among us. They use the eyewitness report circulating among us from the early disciples. And having carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I also have decided to write an accurate account for you, most honourable Theophilus, so that you can be certain of the truth of everything you were taught. John chapter 20, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. 1 John 1, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have observed and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, that life was revealed and we have seen it and we testify and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. What we have seen and heard, we also declare to you. And then in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is explaining the gospel that he preaches. And he says this, I passed on to you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. What Paul is saying is, if you want to find out if this is true, there are people who saw the living, resurrected Jesus that you can go and talk to. The New Testament is eyewitness testimony. Now, it's easy to claim something. How can we be sure? Well, there are geographical and historical details that are used to place the story of Jesus and the church in a particular historical context. For example, there are names of towns and regions. You've got Anon, Arimathea, Bethany, Bethsaida, Jerusalem, Galilee, Cana, Caesarea, Philippi, Chorazin, Gennesaret. Not just made up. These are actual places that have been validated. You've got um, the Bible correctly describing geographical features. For example, when it talks about going to Jerusalem or going from Jerusalem, it says you're going up to Jerusalem, which was on a mountain, or going down from Jerusalem because you're descending. Um, other things, Cana to Capernaum. That journey is consistently described as going down because, again, Capernaum is a lower elevation than Cana of Galilee. In terms of history, you see the Bible mentioning historical people like Caesar Augustus. We'll have heard about Caesar Augustus because it's him who called the census. That means that Jesus was born in Bethlehem in the first place. You know, you have Pontius Pilate, who was the governor in, over Israel at that time and had the power to pardon Jesus or send him to the cross. That's an actual person who really lived there. Now, using these doesn't necessarily mean that the rest of what is written is true, but where the writers have put verifiable information and we're able to verify it, by my book, that means that they can be shown to be true, trustworthy. So when they do say other stuff, we can take it at their word. And this is different to later Gospels. Anyone seen the Da Vinci Code? Anyone read it? Really, really rubbish. <laughs> Both in terms of quality and in terms of what it tries to push about the Christian faith. It is not accurate. And a lot of the stuff that it tries to put on about Jesus and about Christianity 
is on the basis of Gospels that came later on. The Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Philip, that were written in kind of the late second century, not the early first, uh, at the tail end of the first century, like the Gospels we have in the Bible. These other Gospels don't mention any historical or geographical details that you can verify. They don't. So the New Testament is different. The other bit that means that we can trust it, I think, is that the fantastical elements are relatively measured compared to later documents. Yes, there's healing. Yes, there is feeding of the 5,000 from five loaves and two fishes. Yes, God does amazing things. But you have the infancy gospel of Thomas, which again was written in the late second century. And that has a childhood Jesus making birds from clay and then bringing them to life. You don't have any of that in what we actually have in the Bible. You just don't. And actually, these later editions are roundly condemned by the early church. You know, you might hear, you might think, well, okay, that's a nice little story. Maybe we'll pull that one in as well. No, they say that is not our Jesus. Because the early church cared about the truth. You get some people saying, well, you can't trust the New Testament as history because it's biased been written by his followers. How can you trust it? Well, bias doesn't always mean that you're going to play fast and loose with the facts. If I am wrongly accused of fraud, you had better believe I'm going to be biased when I present my case against those who are accusing me. But I'm not going to include any falsehoods, because if I include any falsehoods, you're not going to believe me. You're going to believe the people that's accusing me. So just because there is bias, in the New Testament authors, it doesn't mean that they've produced unreliable history, especially when they place so much stock on truth and reliability. Another reason I think we can trust the Bible, and again, I'm focusing on the Gospels here as an example, but you can expand it out to the whole of the Bible, is the manuscript evidence. They've, there are so many more manuscripts than comparable documents at the same time. And this matters because the writings that we have are the only way we can investigate history. We can't go back. There is no time machine. There is no DeLorean that when you get to 88 miles an hour, you can go to whenever you want. It just doesn't exist. So we have to rely on the documents that we have. Yeah? And we have, for example, Caesar, who wrote about the Gallic War. We have got 10 manuscripts of Caesar's work. Plato, Plato's work. Everyone knows Plato. One of the most famous philosophers that exists. We have seven manuscripts of his work. Tacitus was a historian, a very reliable historian. I'm going to mention him in a minute. He, there are 20 manuscripts of his Annals of History. The Iliad by Homer, not a historical work. It is a work of literature, but 643 manuscripts, a bit better, right? The New Testament, there are 5,000 plus manuscripts or fragments of manuscripts that we can look at. There are 10,000 plus in Latin. There are 10,000 plus in other languages. Why does this matter? Because the more manuscripts you have, the more you can compare and be sure that what you've got is close to what is written in the original version of it. For some reason, and it's precisely because we have always been a people of the book, we have always been people that believe that God speaks in Scripture. We have made sure that there are plenty of copies of the Bible, of the New Testament. Then there's the date of the manuscripts. 
Caesar, written in 100 BC, the earliest copy we've got is AD 900. That's a 1,000 year gap. Plato, written in 400 BC, the earliest copy we have is AD 900. That's a 1,300 year gap. Tacitus, written in 100 AD, the earliest copy is 1100 AD, 1,000 years. Homer, again, a bit better, possibly because there are so many copies. Written in 900 BC, the earliest copy is 400 BC, 500 year gap. The New Testament, written between AD 45 and 96. The earliest copy we have is AD 125. There is a fragment of John's Gospel from AD 85. Most of the copies we have are 2nd, 3rd or 4th century. So that's as little as 35 years and the rest less than 500 years. Why does this matter? Well, it matters because the closer to the original date you are, the more you can be sure that scribal errors, copying mistakes, haven't made their way in. F.F. Bruce said, the evidence for our New Testament writings is so much greater than the evidence for many writings of classical authors, the authenticity of which no one dreams of questioning. And if the New Testament were a collection of secular writings, their authenticity would genuinely be regarded as beyond all doubt. But because it is the Christian's book, because it is the Christian's evidence for the truth of the gospel, you have questions all over the place. Why else can we trust the New Testament and the, the whole of the Bible? Tacitus, I said I was going to come back to him. In the annals of history, Tacitus wrote this. But neither human help, nor gifts from the emperor, nor all the ways of placating heaven could stifle scandal or dispel the belief that the fire had taken place by order of Nero. What he's talking about is there was a fire in the first century in Rome, and it was basically Nero who said that it was done, that it should be done. He should set fire to this place, and he was trying to dispel it. Everyone believed it was him. So to scotch the rumour, Nero substituted as culprits and punished with the utmost refinements of cruelty a class of men loathed for their vices whom the crowd called Christians. Christus, the founder of the name, had undergone the death penalty in the reign of Tiberius by sentence of the procurator Pontius Pilatus. Notice, verifying how the New Testament talks about things. Not a Christian author. He's talking about a class of men loathed for their vices. And the pernicious superstition, that's our faith, by the way. He calls it the pernicious superstition. <laughs> no understatement whatsoever. Was checked for a moment, only to break out once more, not merely in Judea, the home of the disease, but in the capital, Rome itself, where all things horrible or shameful in the world collect and become fashionable. First then, the confessed members of the sect, that is the believers in first century Rome, were arrested. Next, on their disclosure of faith, vast numbers were convicted, not so much on account of arson as for the hatred of the human race. And derision accompanied their end. They were covered with wild beast skins and torn to death by dogs, or they were fastened on crosses, and when daylight failed, were burned to serve as lamps by night. In Nero's garden parties, the light was provided by Christians of the first century. Nero had offered his gardens for the spectacle and gave an exhibition in his circus, mixing with the crowd in the clothes of a charioteer or mounted on his chariot. Hence, in spite of a guilt which had earned the most exemplary punishment, 
He's saying they should have been treated like this, and they should have been, because they were guilty of being Christians. There arose a sentiment of pity due to the impression that they were being sacrificed not for the welfare of the state, but to the ferocity of a single man. That quote from Tacitus's Annals, one shows a critical attitude toward the church and approves of Nero's treatment. It confirms very early persecution of the church. It also confirms other historical details in the Gospels. For example, the crucifixion occurring during the reign of Tiberius and Pontius Pilate. That non-Christian source backs up what we see in the New Testament. He has no reason to, but he's too good a historian to let his bias conquer what you see corroborating as the New Testament. I could mention others. This is a great book. Can We Trust the Gospels by Peter J. Williams? Really good book. Um, I could talk about Josephus, the Jewish historian. I could talk about Pliny the Younger, but I'm running on and I need to think about moving on. So I believe you can trust the Bible. I believe particularly you can trust the New Testament. So what about the crazy stuff? What about the miracles? What about the visions? What about the, the talking animals and things? Well, first thing I want to say is they weren't dummies then either. They weren't. I think we can sometimes look back a little bit snootily, put our noses up, and say, well, of course they accepted magic and miracles back then. They didn't know what we know now, right? <coughs> well, let's take the virgin birth as, as an example. Well, of course they believed the virgin birth. They were gullible. Except Joseph didn't. What did Joseph do when he found out about Mary's pregnancy? He didn't say, hallelujah, it's a miracle. He said, uh-oh, we're betrothed, and she's clearly pregnant by another. Now, I don't want to embarrass her, so I'm going to break this betrothal secretly and quietly. And we'll just put her away. And it wasn't until he himself had a visit from an angel in a dream that he thought, do you know what? God did do this. That story that she said is true. You see other people questioning the patronage of Jesus in his life. You see the Jewish people in John 8 saying, well, we know who our father is. Who is yours? As if they're aware of the rumours that maybe Joseph isn't really his dad. They didn't believe in the virgin birth because they were gullible. They believed because all of the other miracles that Jesus did, the death and resurrection most of all, actually makes balking at the virgin birth like straining at a gnat and swallowing a camel, if I can borrow a phrase from Jesus. The religious authorities were skeptical about the signs. We've seen this in uh, the Gospel of John. There is a man who was born blind from birth, clearly well known by the people, now standing in front of the Sanhedrin, and they're saying, yeah, but Jesus couldn't have done it. Okay, if you did it, do another sign. Jesus declines because they didn't want another sign out of good motives. They would have just poo-pooed that as well. I've already mentioned the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus Christ three days after he was crucified was countered by the religious authorities. I don't know if you've ever noticed it in the Gospels, but when the guards report the empty tomb, the religious and political powers say, well, just tell them that the disciples stole the body. People will believe that. 
We'll have a look in just a moment whether that theory even makes any sense. But notice, they would have loved to produce the body of Christ. Because if you can produce the body of Christ, well, the whole resurrection story goes away. But they never did. And if the Christians venerated and worshipped and devoted themselves to Jesus, and there was a grave, surely they would have made a note of it. Surely they would have not disgraced Jesus by just chucking the body somewhere. No, the only answer to my mind is that Jesus himself rose from the dead. It's the only one that makes sense to me. If they stole the body, do you think they would have died for their faith? If, as we've seen from Tacitus, all it took to be thrown to the lions, to be made a garden torch in Nero's garden, was to say, do you know what, I don't believe it after all. Do you think they'd have gone through it if they knew it was a fiction? I wouldn't have done. If I knew something was fabricated, there is no way I would have done it. Peter was crucified upside down, tradition tells us, because he didn't want to be like his Lord in that way. He didn't count himself worthy of being crucified in the same way. Would he do that? if he knew that there'd been a conspiracy to steal the body and make all of this up. I don't think he would. The other thing is that they're not embellishments over time. I didn't read this on my notes, but it was there. Even non-Christian scholars agree that the Gospels and most of the New Testament was written by 80 AD at the latest. That means that you're like 40 years from the end of Jesus's life, and you've got these stories of miracles. Normally, what you see is what happens in Islam. Muhammad, in the Quran, says, I've done no miracles, Allah has not permitted me to do any miracles, but once he dies, you start finding these stories coming along. That isn't it with Jesus. While he is still alive, people are telling of his miracles. And then they're telling of miracles being done in his name after he's gone back to heaven, after he's been raised to life. The sorts of stories you get in the infancy gospel of Thomas about bringing clay birds to life is the sort of thing you find growing over time. That's not what you find in the New Testament. These haven't just been embellished over time. The gospel itself in 1 Corinthians 15, we've already read it out. 1 Corinthians 15 was written in around 45-50 AD. 15 years after Jesus was crucified and raised back to life. And you have it here fully. Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. And he appeared to a whole group of people, some of whom you can go and talk to. This is from day one that this, the gospel was believed. That gospel that means you and me can have our sins forgiven because Jesus took them on the cross that we can be sure that we will be raised to life because he himself was raised to life. We can be sure he was dead because he was buried and they knew dead bodies in those days. They didn't go about burying people that weren't dead. They were much closer to death than we are. This gospel in which we can just say sorry for the things we have done wrong, look to Jesus on the cross and know that he has paid that price, was there from day one. It's not embellishments over time. And actually, thinking a bit more philosophically, miracles, signs, and wonders 
become possible when you're open to the supernatural. The main reason it's a problem to the 21st century in the West is that we've rejected the supernatural. We've rejected the spiritual. We've said what we can see, hear, taste, touch is all there is. Therefore, these things must be made up or just signs of a more primitive age. But if you believe as we believe that God created the world and he continues to work in the world, then miracles, healings, signs and wonders actually make a bit more sense. They are signs that God did not abandon us, even though we rebelled against him. So I think the Bible is trustworthy. I think even the more fantastical stuff makes sense when you think about it. I hope I've piqued your interest enough to want to check the Bible out for yourself. Because actually we believe that the Bible proves itself if you'll actually just give some time to read it. The Bible makes various claims about itself. Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. There are times I am reading this book, or one of the books within this library of books, and it's like something leaps off the page, and I know it's for me. It's convicting me of something that I've done wrong, or it's saying, have hope, like we've heard today as we were worshipping. Psalm 19 says this, the instruction of the Lord is perfect, renewing one's life. So many times I found hope and renewal in this book. The testimony of the Lord is trustworthy, making the inexperienced wise. We think we're wise, but the wisdom is here. So many times I've been corrected by this book. The precepts of the Lord are right, making the heart glad. The command of the Lord is radiant, making the eyes light up. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinance of the Lord are reliable and altogether righteous. They are more desirable than gold, than an abundance of pure gold, and sweeter than honey dripping from a honeycomb. That's the word of God. That is the scriptures that we are privileged to have on our shelves. I want to encourage you to take it off the shelf and read it. Don't just leave it up there. If you haven't got a Bible, we've got New Testaments at the back that you can take away for free. Please. Because I think if you do, you will see that the Bible is trustworthy. How can you do it? Well, pick a modern version. Don't fight along with the KJV that uses Elizabethan English, slightly updated, uh, and will only confuse you because words have changed their meaning since then. The NIV, the New Testaments we've got at the back are the New International Version. What I'm holding in my hand is the Christian Standard Bible. New American Standard Bible is a good literal word-for-word -word translation. The New King James Version takes the King James and slightly updates it if you want to be a little bit more aligned with the King James. Common English Bible is a bit more thought for thought, but um, still um, translated by a good committee of people rather than just one person. Again, the Good News Bible, thought for thought rather than word for word, but a bit easier to read, especially if English isn't your first language. Or the English Standard Version, another good translation. Pick a modern version, then choose a book to read. I recommend the Gospel. Luke or John is a good place to start. Pray before you read. Even if you're not sure if you believe in God or not, you can ask him to speak with you if he's there. 
just open it and say, God, if you're really there, and if this is really your word, would you speak to me as I read? And then read it as naturally as possible. Don't worry about the, the chapters and the verses. They're not in the original. Just read a chunk at a time and pause if something seems to leap off the page like I've described, because that might just be God speaking to you through the pages of the Bible. But keep an eye out for Jesus. That's really easy if you're reading the Gospels. If you're reading an Old Testament book, don't just say, well, this is about Israel. Keep an eye out for where you might see Jesus in the story of Israel. Because Jesus himself says, it's all about him. Think about what response you need to make in your life. And you know what? Treasure the questions. There's a song by a singer-songwriter called Martin Joseph um, called Treasure the Questions that I remember hearing as a teenager. And it was really helpful during that time of doubt and investigation I talked about last week. Because it ends, I will treasure the questions because one day I'm going to know. In this life, we are not promised the answer to every question we might have. You're not going to understand everything in the Bible, but you will understand some things. Don't let the questions put you off what you do understand. Yeah? If you are satisfied that the Bible is trustworthy, give it the benefit of the doubt. Keep hold of the question, maybe write it down and revisit it every now and again. You might find that you can see an answer someday in the future as you read more of the Bible. You might find that the question actually is less important over time because the Bible changes us. It changes how we see things. But if the question remains, our hope and belief is that one day we will know everything we need to know, including those questions we aren't able to answer in this life. Just like last week, I've only been able to scratch the surface. There is so much more we can say about the Bible. There is so much more we can talk about the reliability and the trustworthiness. But just like last week, if you are interested, there are some books you can look at. Number one, Confronting Christianity by Rebecca McLaughlin. Not just about the Bible. That has a chapter about, surely you can't take the Bible literally in there. Uh, the, I read out from Can We Trust the Gospels? Um, that is by Peter J. Williams, a really good book. A little book called Can I Really Trust the Bible? It will not take you long to read at all. But again, looks at what the Bible claims for itself and just looks at some of the evidence and sees whether it stands up to scrutiny. And then that other one on the right-hand side that might be tricky to read, the Infographic Bible. I love this book. If you are at all a data geek, if you like detail, if you, like, if you are a visual learner, this is the book for you. It takes themes from the Bible and charts them out in a visual fashion. The, the thing about the, all the prophecies in the Bible going from left to right and creating that arc between the two is from this book. Really, really good if you want to just take a different approach to understanding a bit more about the Bible. Hopefully I've answered the question, isn't the Bible just full of fairy tales and myths? Hopefully you've got a little bit more confidence that the Bible might just be what it claims to be. As ever, we're going to do another question next week. If you have any questions, send them in, write it down, chuck it in the box that we've got, the post box at the back. And on the last week, on the uh, 25th minus 7, the 17th of February, I think, um, we're going to do the last one, and that's just going to be a catch-all. 
Any question I haven't been able to cover, um, we can go through. I will take spontaneous questions, but if you have got a question that you know about right now, it would be really, really kind if you share it so I've got a bit of time to prepare. Um, I'm going to end our time by praying, and then Cindy and Roger, do you want to come and lead us in one more song? Lord Jesus, I want to thank you for your word. I want to thank you that in your word, we have the words of truth and life. I want to thank you, Lord Jesus, that we can trust your word, that it is shown to be reliable. And in our lives, as we read it, we find that it is living and active. Lord, as we go and pursue understanding more about your word in the days that come, I pray that your spirit would uh, illuminate the page, Lord, that you would take what we read and apply it to our hearts. So that just like the Gospel of John says, we will believe in Jesus Christ and in believing have life in his name. We ask this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen.